Hey everyone, welcome to another. <laughs> Megan is laughing already. I'm sorry. Okay, we just got here. All right, all right. See and seen or whatever that means. Hey y'all, it's Megan. It's Ashley and Dylan, and this is the Forward South Podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode six of the Forward South podcast. We are back with another great episode, and let's get into it. Six episodes deep. <laughs> Holler. Yes. All right, guys, so let's uh, start with our Southern stories this week. Who wants to go first? I'll go. So you all may have heard about this week, it was exposed by several Alabama journalists that one of the main groups being considered one of the finalists, in fact, for the contract between the state of Alabama and what would be a private company to construct the new prison facilities that have been proposed by Governor Ivey is a group called Alabama Prison Transportation Partners. Now, the media has uncovered that this is one of the five finalists, as I mentioned, uh, that the governor's office is considering. And that there's essentially no publicly available information about this organization or business or whatever they call themselves. Now, our audience should know that this is a $900 million estimated prison construction project. And so the fact that this group has even made it as a finalist, given that we're talking about $900 million in taxpayer funds to construct more prisons, which we'll talk about that later, but to construct more prisons, we would sign a contract with a company that we have no information about, no history on, nothing to tell us in terms of how they've operated or done this before is alarming. But then there's more. We find out that four of the finalists are also organizations like the GEO Group, which operates private prisons, Corvius LLC, known for managing military housing, Corrections Consultants LLC, which presents itself as a managing consulting firm, and Core Civic, the former Corrections Corporation of America, another private prison operator. So even those others that are being considered are even either known for operating private prisons or have no history on operating or constructing prisons at all. This is a part of a larger conversation narrative going on in Alabama right now about the prison system and with the ongoing violence, the suicides, the consistent death that's taking place in our prisons is just really deeply concerning. We know that this is a crisis, but if this is Governor Ivey's solution and way about going about fixing it, then we're, we've got a much bigger problem facing us than I think we even knew. So for those of you who were listening to our third episode, but our very first of this format, we talked a lot about government transparency here in Alabama. And I think it's astounding that one, we're already under investigation for the terrible conditions in our prisons, worst in the country, some of the worst in the world, I would even venture. And two, we're talking about a way to fix them is to just pour $900 million into facilities and not necessarily also look at structural changes. As somebody who has worked within prisons before here in Alabama, yes, there does need to be facility changes, but there are plenty of things we could do with $900 million that don't involve going to a private company that we have no idea on and that the government doesn't want to tell us who these people are. So Exactly. And that's the thing, right, is that literally the Department of Justice report that was published earlier this year states explicitly that 
prison construction is not a solution out of Alabama's crisis. This is not going to absolve the violence and the deaths and the suicide crisis, the lack of mental health treatment, the lack of vocational educational training that is present. None of those things are, or, or prison construction is going is not going to be a solution to all those things that are already true. Not to mention the sentencing guidelines that are constantly driving more and more people into our prisons, black and brown people, frankly, into our prisons throughout the state that have led to us operating at over 160% design capacity in Alabama prisons. Like, it's absolutely insane. And it's sickening to me that this construction project is being thrown around and we're not supposed to ask any questions. We're not supposed to question the governor. In fact, they've been very dismissive towards journalists who've been prying into this. But, you know, this has been kind of being done in the shady behind the scenes way. And this is something that is literally the Department of Justice. This is Trump's Department of Justice, y'all, is saying Alabama's prisons are so bad. If you don't get your shit together, we're going to have to come in and take them over. And the governor's like, oh, well, we'll just build some new ones. We'll be good. Yeah, to me, this just sounds like much like we do everything in Alabama, some sort of way to funnel tax dollars into private companies here mm. so that we can give out some, some payouts and some bailouts so that people can get reelected. So that's what that sounds like to me. All right. Well, in my Southern story this week, I'm going to try to bring some happiness and some progressiveness into some Alabama policies. So many of you probably saw um, on Tuesday night, Birmingham Mayor Randall Woodfin has announced as a part of his Birmingham Promise program that starting in 2020, any Birmingham City School student that walks across the graduation stage will have the opportunity to attend any public in-state two or four-year school tuition-free. And I I'm not going to get into the the who's and how's and why's of all of this. He hasn't yet announced how he plans to fund this. I do know that Birmingham promises a public and private partnership, and so I'm sure funding will be coming as as part of that partnership. But I want to say how exciting it is to have a leader in Alabama who is willing to be a visionary and creative to fix some of our education woes. Mm-hmm. I know here in Montgomery, Dylan posted about this today so I'm not (laughs) gonna pretend like it was my original idea but posted today literally saying you know and we thought that a mayor couldn't fix education and that's wrong we can have partnerships in our cities that are saying hey you know what a big gap for our students is that they can't afford to go to college and Mm -hmm. then they what, what do they do they stay in our city and they don't have further education so here's what I'm going to do as their leader to fix it and we need more of that so that we can build better infrastructure for the future And I think that's what's most important about a move like this is that it's looking toward a long game. Of course, we can't expect that this just jumps and fixes things for students in this system. It's a move toward a future goal for these students, a future promise that they will be able to access higher education when in many cases they are relying on excessive financial aid packages that they will have to reckon with later in life. I know we are all familiar with those. So I'm hopeful that this is the kind of work that starts building economies that provide some degree of upward mobility for the people in these communities. And we'll have to see moving forward whether it does that, but I'm hopeful that it will. And I would just want to say on this, you know, the organization that I work for 
pushes for education equity and we yeah I believe that workforce development should be a big priority for us right like of course we need people at all levels and all jobs but what we tend to do with workforce development and CTE programs is funnel in black and brown and poor students into those programs Mm -hmm. and they don't ever get the opportunity to go to college Mm -hmm. and to really you know perform on the same level that they would with any of their more white affluent peers who had maybe a better educational opportunity. So what that's also what I love about this. There's like a, there's a strict like equity piece of this saying that just because you came from this school system and, and the state has this expectation for what you will do in your life. No, if you can make it to a four year college, don't worry about the money, worry about excelling. And you're right. That is where upward mobility can come from. So I'd love that about this. Yeah. And, and, you know, like I was a first generation college student, so I absolutely understand like, you know, I remember going into my college orientation and I had scholarship money and some financial aid and stuff like that. But like me and my mom were left out of there being like, oh, shit, this is going to be expensive. Like thinking that because I was on a scholarship that things were taken care of and not and then realizing there's so much more to it in terms of the expenses and everything I have to worry about. And this is why so many kids check out in terms of the idea of going before they even get to the point of applying. So many kids go ahead and be like, my family does not have the money and we don't have the ability to do it. So like, I'm not even, they don't even get excited. And that's so unfortunate. One of the joys for me in high school was thinking just about going to college. I didn't have the money to go visit a lot of places. I I went on zero college tours before I went. But it was still so, it was hopeful, like you mentioned, like the, the idea that like I was gonna be the first person in my family to be able to do this and that my family had put in so much work to, to ensure that I was in a place to go to that next level. And I love that, that about this, that it's inspiring, like you said, Hope Megan, but it's also making people think, I think, twice before they kind of give up on our public schools or give up on especially those schools that are located in city urban areas and where there's this flight happening across the country has been for a long time and it's this trend towards the white more affluent people taking their kids to suburban districts or out of those city urban areas and then that money is following them and the students in those schools that are left do not have the supports and resources and services that they need and so that's a part of a much bigger issue but I love this for that reason and you know like you said it's nice to see a mayor displaying that visionary leadership too yeah so we'll have to watch this and see how it works out for students and maybe some other mayors across the state can can take some of the same cues so today we are interviewing someone who's bringing a once hidden story to the forefront and doing that through film We sat down with Josh Carples to hear more insight into his work and the process behind this incredible film. All right, y'all. This week, we have the pleasure of sitting down with director and documentarian Josh Carples. Very recently, he did a private screening of his brand new documentary, Remembering Anarcha, and we're now getting the chance to sit down with him and ask him about what the documentary is, his process, and why he did it. So thank you for joining us, Josh. Yeah, thanks for having me. So if you can start off and give people a little bit more information about you, your life, and more about Remembering Anarcha. I am a musician, actor, filmmaker, and photographer based here in Montgomery. And like you said, I just finished my second feature documentary, Remembering Anarcha. 
Great. Can you give us a little bit of background on the summary of Remembering Anarcha? And then what kind of led you to this story? Remembering Anarcha deals with the controversial history of Dr. James Marion Sims and the women that we now refer to as the mothers of gynecology. He's known as the father of modern gynecology, and he's the one that has, you know, there's a statue on our Capitol grounds here in Montgomery, Alabama. There's one in the State House grounds in Columbia, South Carolina. And up until last year, there was one in Central Park in New York City, and that one has been removed due to content, and there were a lot of protests. And so, interestingly enough, so even though that statue has been on our Capitol grounds since 1939, and I grew up in Montgomery, I did not know about this story. You know, even growing up here taking Alabama history, I didn't know about the story until early last year. There's a statue that's currently downstairs from where we are recording this podcast in the More Than Tours area, Michelle Browder shop. Wasn't she, did you say she was on the podcast? Yes, episode one. Episode show. one. Since yeah. the beginning, yeah. See, there you go. So go back and listen to episode one now. Exactly. In her shop, she has a statue of Anarka Westcott. And in her previous location, she had that statue out by the road. And I'd stopped by to talk to her about a different documentary idea I was thinking about at the time. And she wasn't in. And so, uh, but I saw the statue and there were some flyers under it. And so I grabbed a flyer and I went home and I started looking more into the story. And I was like, whoa, this is in my backyard. This is in Montgomery, my hometown. And I didn't know about it. So how many other people from this area or even away from this area, how many other people don't know about this story or the fact that there is more to this story? In my last documentary I did, I did completely like by myself, which is like, it's kind of a headache when you do that. So (laughs) I would rather work with some other people that are willing to help me out and jump on this. So I reached out to a couple of friends of mine, Royce Williams and C. Dwayne Cunningham, both of them very talented filmmakers and good friends of mine. And I asked if they would be interested in joining me on this journey. And they both right away said, yeah. And we started trying to figure out who we could talk to and and went from there. Great. So who is Anarka? She is one of the enslaved women that were experimented on by James Marion Sims as he was discovering different tools and techniques in what we now call gynecology. That wasn't We found out through this that wasn't really a term in the 1840s. And so she came from the Westcott Plantation, which is why most people know her as Anarka Westcott, is because that was the plantation she came from. That was part of West Montgomery. Even now, there is still a Westcott Cemetery in Montgomery that dates back to 1817. That, that land was part of the plantation at the time. So you, there were, there's three women of the 10 to 12 or so. There's three whose names that we actually know, and it's Anarka, Lucy, and Betsy. Anarka being the most well-known of the three, she also endured the most surgeries, according to historians. It was upwards of 30. Can you tell us a little bit about what the editorial process looks like? I mean, once you make the decision to take an endeavor like this and make a documentary about something many people don't know about, even though it's in our backyard, what does that look like? Every filmmaker has kind of their own style or their own method of doing things. And so the way I do things is I'm not the star of the documentary. Uh, You don't see my face or hear my voice at all in the film, whereas there's a lot of documentary filmmakers out there, many that I enjoy, and they're the star of their own movies, basically. But that's, that's not my style. 
My thing is, so I approach it like a journalist would basically. I'm trying to find the experts. I want to talk to people that know more than I do and who are also willing to go on camera <laughs> and tell me. Because, you know, some people are like, that's controversial. I'm not going to get involved. So once you find people that are actually willing to sit down with you that do know more than you. So, I mean, we reached out to people in the medical community. We reached out to college professors. Michelle, that we mentioned earlier, she's in the film since that piece of art is what sparked this whole thing. And we have a former state senator that's in the film. So step one, reach out to people that know more than me and try to schedule interviews. The weird thing about documentaries versus narrative, because I do both, and, and doing narrative, you have a script. So when you're editing, you know it, there's scene one, there's scene two, you know what's happening, you know how to put the story together. With a documentary, the way I always describe it to people, imagine someone just gives you a whole bunch of puzzle pieces and they keep the picture on the box. Mm -hmm and you have no idea, and you're trying to put things together as they fit. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's like once, once we finally get all the interviews done that we're doing, at that point, I get transcripts of all of these interviews. I mean, some of these transcripts are like pretty long. You know, you talk to somebody for an hour, sometimes two right. hours almost, um, asking them questions and stuff. You're gonna have a lot to go through. So uh, I get the transcripts, I sit down with a highlighter, I go through and I'm like, okay, that's interesting, okay, that's interesting. Oh, the way they worded, that's really good. And then it's a matter of how do I construct a story to tell it in the most interesting way that I know how. And it's really, that's when I'm starting to put these puzzle pieces together. I can say, okay, we talked to seven people. Four of them talked about this particular issue. Mm -hmm. So let's see if I can put them together talking about this issue. And maybe one person went into more detail than the other person. Or in some cases, maybe two people disagree. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I'm talking to two people that disagree, and I look at both of them as knowing more than I do, I'll put them back to back. Mm -hmm. on screen mm -hmm. like because I also look at the audience as being smarter than me everybody's smarter than me <laughs> I, that's, that's what it comes down to the people I'm talking to know more than I do and my audience can put things together without me spoon feeding them mm -hmm. and right. so if there's two people on screen that disagree and I wasn't there I'm gonna put them back to back and let the audience hear both sides of it at least and then they can make the decision which one they feel is more credible Josh, you mentioned that there were some folks who, you know, didn't feel comfortable speaking on the topic or didn't kind of really want to go there. Did that deter you at all? That actually goes to one of the interesting things about the documentary format as opposed to narrative. So if you're chasing a story and people aren't giving you the story, then now the story is that you're chasing a story nobody wants to talk to you about. So you still, <laughs> at the end of the day, have a story. It may not be the one that you set out to tell right. initially, but you can still have a story. Luckily, you know, we had already had a number of people that had already agreed early on to go on camera. So, I mean, at minimum, there were people we were going to interview. Mm -hmm. But then other people that we were reaching out to, some of them just kind of shied away from it. Even when we just needed B-roll in certain areas, right. there were certain organizations that were like, eh, we'd rather not have our name involved and declined. And so then I'm like, all right, well, I need to find something else for this part. And I start reaching out to people who introduce me to other people. And, and it's really, you know, at that point, it's about networking and trying to trying mm -hmm. to find people that will talk to you or willing to help you out in certain areas. Sure. So 
What did Anarcha's story teach you? I learned so much during this entire process, really. There's so many issues that, that are dealt with in the film. Like, you know, we've got slavery, we have medical ethics, we have informed consent, we have the way all of that trickles down um, into today when we're talking about medicine and we're talking about race and stuff like that. Like I had a, a friend of mine, woman of color, and she was talking about watching this film and again at the private screening, everybody's not public yet, but we're, we're trying to get in film festivals right now. So my friend was talking about that the film was actually triggering for her because of things that she's dealt with, even when it comes to anesthesia. And mm -hmm. I mean, this is 2019. And so that's one of the things that I learned like because there are so many issues that are part of this story and it is a learning experience especially for me because you know I'm a white guy in Alabama right like and there's probably some people out there that are like why are you the guy that is the director of this film which fair question and I I brought that up myself to both of my producers and to a couple of close friends of mine and I said, is there going to be pushback? Mm -hmm. You know, am, am I going to catch some flack mm -hmm. just because they're, you know, why is this white guy trying to tell this story? And so, I mean, that actually popped up in my head. And if it popped up in my head, I, I figure it's probably popping up in other people's heads as well. And so, you know, but when I asked both my producers and my close friends, they were just like, look, this story needs to be told. Mm -hmm. If nobody else is out there doing this already, which I guess there hasn't been because I haven't seen any any other film like this one. It, you know, I've seen like short, like eight-minute thing on Vox because the statue was coming down in New York or something, but not anything quite as, as in-depth as we have attempted to go with this film. And they were saying, look, man, if, if this is the story needs to be told, and if you're the one that, that got the idea, follow it. Well, truth is, that, that question did come to my mind when I actually we first got your email about the screening. And that, but that is actually what was part of kind of the reason that compelled me to email you back and ask you to come on the podcast. Because I was like, well, I'd love to you know, see it, but also talk to him about you know, his intentionality behind this and why he decided to pursue this. It's clear that you sought out to present a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different voices, you know, throughout this documentary. Was that important to you to ensure that, you know, you kind of were, of course, driving this, but you were taking yourself out of it. Like you said, you're not even featured in it. So, but there are so many other voices and people that you see throughout the documentary. So was that part of why you kind of did it that way and approached it? Um, well, of the two documentaries I've done, that's just kind of my approach mm -hmm. anyway, is I like to be able to take myself out of it and let the people on screen tell the story. Because again, I want to talk to people that know more than I do about whatever subject I'm pursuing at the time. And it really, you know, it was important for me to try to get different voices in there as well because there are so many different aspects to this story. And that's why, you know, we didn't just talk to doctors. We didn't just talk to artists. You know, we, we've got two doctors that are in the film. There's a surgeon, there's an OBGYN because they have different specialties, mm -hmm. but they're both familiar with the story. We have two artists in town, artists who are also activists and very outspoken on a lot of issues. They're in the film as well. We've got an author who's actually from New York who's currently working on a book about anarcha. And his research is, is absolutely fascinating. We have a former state senator who has called for the removal of the statue in Montgomery. And so I was like, okay, we need to talk to this guy too. You know, we wanted that 
the various aspects because of the various aspects in the film. You know, th there is a medical aspect, there is a historical aspect, there is a biographical aspect, there is a racial aspect, there are political aspects. There are all these different subheadings, I guess you could say, under this main story, and we wanted to pursue it as in-depth as we possibly could as filmmakers. As somebody who, I got to see the film at a private screening here in Montgomery, and you know, the title of this is called Remembering Anarcha, and when we got to the end of the film, one thing that I, I thought you did so well was live up to that title. So, so often when we tell stories in history, we allow the narrative for white folks to be that they are the best thing that they've ever done, mm -hmm. while we allow the narrative for uh, particularly black folks if we're speaking about slavery or civil rights to be their stories are consumed by the worst things they've ever endured or the things that they had to overcome. And while there is a thread of that for Anarka because that is her truth, we follow this character arc of Anarka all the way to the end and we find out that she's lived a full life and actually probably had a little bit more autonomy later in her life. And I thought that that was so important and why did you choose to end the documentary that way? And is there was there a message you hoped people gained from that ending? Well, the author in the film, um, his name is J.C. Hallman, and he's the guy that's working on a book called The Anarcha Quest. When I first contacted him to be in the film, he told me he was like a founder. And I was like, wait, what? what he, wait, what? What? You know, like, because, I mean, there aren't the greatest of records from those days from a lot of people because like they were considered property you know and so his research and which is his research is fascinating and that's one thing like even talking to him I said dude I can't wait for your book to come out because you're going to be able to go into so much more detail in book form than we could ever put in a 90 minute film mm -hmm. once he told me where this information was that he had uncovered mm -hmm. Immediately, I was like, I want to see this for myself. Mm -hmm. You know, when it comes to the statue in New York, I can get some photos to represent what I need. But I was like, I need to be there for this. And so Royce and I took a road trip and we brought cameras and audio equipment with us. And we met up with him in the state of Virginia. And he took us out and showed us what he found. And once I was there, because I had already started editing at that point. I probably had at least an hour or so of the edit kind of done, or at least like a first draft. And once I found out that he was going to like take us there, I said, okay. I just felt that that was going to be the perfect end. I really did. And I, that's what I thought was a good bookend to it. Mm -hmm. From the start, it kind of starts and ends with her, mm -hmm. about her. And I just... I thought that was important for the story and for history itself because again like the the stuff that he has uncovered in his research I'm telling you like his book whenever it comes out is going to be fascinating. I think it's set for like 2020 or something but mm -hmm. it's it's going to be fascinating. So where does the film go from here and how do we help or or what does it take to now get it out to wider audiences? Well, what we're trying to do now is we have started submitting to different film festivals. And the goal for that is you have distribution companies or studios that will send representatives to these film festivals to purchase films. And so our goal is to hopefully get into some film festivals and for somebody to actually want to buy the film that could actually put it out to a wider audience than, than what we could do as just 
indie filmmakers. Sure. So we we've started. I think as of as of this recording, we have submitted to six so far. Oh, awesome. And we have a list of others that we're going to be submitting to. Now, of course, my uh, fellow producers and I, we all have day jobs, <laughs> and so film festivals cost money to submit to. Basically, you could spend thousands of dollars submitting to as many as you wanted to. And I mean, they could all be like, no. And then you don't get a refund. You just out the money. So it's a submission fee, not an acceptance fee. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, we're just, we're continually like just putting out money. And then, you know, if we do get accepted to some, we would want to go there and represent the film, possibly do a Q&A afterwards. Right, right. Uh, that kind of thing, which also travel expenses, all that costs money. So if anybody would like to help <laughs> us get this film out to more people, I've got Cash App, Venmo, <laughs> PayPal, and it's Drop all em. under my name, Josh Carpel. <laughs> so, you know, if you got five bucks, ten bucks, you know, and you want to help us out and, and allow us to submit to more festivals, we would, we would love the help. Sure, and we'll definitely make sure we include that information in the description so for our listeners they can see all of it in the details of this episode and everything. Because I know we joke, but we get it. This is You're sitting in our side gig right now. So. Right, right. right. And, and we do have social media accounts set up for right. the film. So if anybody wants to kind of track the progress and see behind the scenes stuff and that sort of thing, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Facebook and Instagram are at Remembering Anarka. Twitter is at Remember Anarka. And you spell Anarka A-N-A-R-C-H-A? That's it, yes. 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 Okay. Spelling be champ. Thank you. I have blanked there, right there in the middle. I guys heard that pause. I was like, I was like, wow, I came out of this real confident. And I shouldn't have. Um, but again, we just want to thank you, Josh. I think you know we are in the business of storytelling, especially sure. stories that aren't told, and especially Southern stories that aren't told. And um, you're right; you are the only person I've seen who has been able to put um, an Arca story in such a digestible, honest, real, raw. Uh, format for people to get and understand and uh, thank, you. thank you for that bravery and for putting in your own personal time and money to make sure that Anarka isn't forgotten and that the true story of her life is able to be told so we really appreciate that and thank you for coming on to join us today oh, thank you I appreciate it so y'all it is time to bless some hearts this week who you got? I always go first. <laughs> and they already know what I'm going I'm going to go off. So well, I should do it anyway. Yeah, yes. so, we're, <laughs> so we're waiting. I'm like, okay. So I'm talking this week about the Alabama Republican Party, the grand old party, deciding that they were going to pass a resolution which urged the state's congressional delegation to begin the process of expelling freshman representative who we've talked about a few times on this podcast so far, but representative Ilhan the Omar from Minnesota. Um, so you all know Il- Ilhan, you know, she's that girl. So like, you know, she's doing her thing. She's the top notch. She's shaking tables. And so she's got people talking all across the country. You know, the squad's got people talking, even down here in Alabama, where they ain't got nothing to do with Representative Omar. But OK, so, you know, there's been this talk about her being anti-Semitic because she's a Muslim woman and because of her uh, positions that have been critical of Israel and everything like that. And so this very same Alabama Republican Party, which 
a smooth two years ago as we were, you know, it's August now. So we were coming up just, we were just months out two years ago from the allegations on Judge Roy Moore surfacing, thanks to our media once again, regarding his sexual misconduct and child molestation. And so, you know, there was lots of questions. Will the Alabama Republican Party stand behind their general election nominee for Senate? Are they willing to lose this election in a historic manner to Doug Jones in order to condemn a man like Judge Roy Moore who had these allegations out against him? And so, you know, most people would assume not worth it to stand with a child molester, but what did they do? They actually put out a statement just weeks before the election, after all of these sur- uh, these allegations had come to the surface, and they said, we're with them. We still stand with him. We don't buy any of this. And so here we are and two years later. they still lost. They still and lost. And they still lost. And so here we are two years later, and who is who is their target who is the person they're picking a fight with? It's Representative Omar. And you have to wonder, what is the, what's the reason? Oh, she's Muslim? So that makes her a bigger target than a child molester? Wow. So here we are. Bless your heart, Alabama GOP, because you are choosing to take a racist stance and position against a Muslim congresswoman when you didn't have the courage to take a stand against a child molester two years ago. Bless your heart. You know, my bless your heart for this week is very simple. I just want to tell Roy Moore, bless your heart. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) That's all he needs. I won't even give him other words. You know why. I know why. We all know why. Roy Moore. I want to say this say this one story about Roy Moore there because it's so funny. One time I was at the Mama <laughs> Goldbergs downtown in Montgomery, and he walked in, and he wasn't even facing me, and the person that I was with pointed at him. I was like, is that Roy Moore? And I knew from the shape of his head <laughs> that it was him because he has a very weirdly shaped head, in case anybody's ever wondered. If so you haven't seen him in person, <laughs> don't make your way down here. Yeah, so that was really unsettling, and I had a hard time finishing my sandwich, but I just thought that was funny. <laughs> Roy Moore, bless your head. (laughs) (laughs) So we know who's not our people yet again. But you guys, this week, who are your people? I can start. (laughs) Please do, Queen Ashley. (laughs) So the VMAs were this week, and they were popping. I heard. I don't have cables. Telling all your business. (laughs) (laughs) I did not see them. I mean, but who does though? Anyway, so I saw a beautiful, bright, shining brown face on my computer screen this week, and that was the face of Lil Nas X, who is from the state of Georgia and is Southern AF, and he is the first openly LGBTQ artist to win a song of the year for the club stopping booty popping song old town road and yeah he's just my person this week because i love seeing queer people be out and proud especially people of color 
and for him to rise all the way to the top and stay on the top of the charts as long as he has has been beautiful so he is my person that's beautiful i really love that you know, I was just I'm, having a moment. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I no. like if we were all really captivated by Ashley, like speaking that just then. That's you know. Yes, I love I love him. Yeah. He means a lot actually so yes. to me. So yeah. Well, I will say my people this week are actually, and I've talked about this obviously a lot on the episode already. Is the Alabama media? I think that really it's time and time again we find most of our stories are coming from these exact you know journalists that i have swirling around in my head right now but we find that they are our saving grace in this state you know journalism is so 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 critical we're finding out especially in this era in our country but you know a lot of the conditions that are happening nationally right now have been true of alabama for a very long time as you all know and from the civil rights movement all the way up to now it's been journalists who have been on the front lines and following the stories and investigating who have told the stories and put them out there to the wider public and peel back the layers and you know we have a lot of corruption that happens in the Alabama government you all have heard me talk about prisons today and heard me talk about the conditions and this shadiness around the the contract with the prisons and you know these journalists are the ones who are peeling back these stories for us and letting us know what's really going on and giving this look in and that's so important for the work that I do on a day-to-day it drives our ability to shape policy and to figure out what's really going on in order to inform the work that we do so I have to give a shout out to each and every journalist up and down the state who is doing that critical work to tell the important stories as we even seek to do here of people that otherwise would just go unknown. And just to plug a series of stories that I find really, really awesome and interesting right now is Montgomery Advertiser reporter Brian Lyman is doing a series right now on how climate change is specifically affecting Alabama and our resources. So you should go check that out. It has been very eye-opening. And Brian Lyman is always on the forefront of of these stories. Thank you. Um, But yes, go check that out and learn more about uh, the ecosystems in our state because I've learned a lot too. All right. Well, my people this week are the Communications Workers of America. So for those of you who don't know, CWA is a union. And on Midnight Friday, they began to strike in Mississippi and eight other states, including us, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, and South Carolina. And the protest included more than 20,000 employees, including like technicians, customer service representatives, and all others who install equipment and provide support for AT&T. And the reason they were striking was, I'm sure we can all see this, unfair work practices. They haven't specifically said what those practices were publicly, but that's why they were striking. And I just wanted to say thank you for CWA. I actually was driving to work. So my the building that I work in is right near that AT&T building here in Montgomery. And I was driving to work um, on, I believe it was Monday morning and I drove past some people striking and I honked and gave them a thumbs up. Um, so thank you to the hard workers of America and thank you to unions for standing up for workers and thank you for the, to the CWA members who were willing to strike out of work and put their integrity as workers first and demand that AT&T treat them well. So y'all are my people this week and I'm glad that you guys, it seems like you guys have reached an agreement with AT&T as of Wednesday morning. So I hope that that works out in your favor and we'll continue watching this situation. What a beautiful episode six, you all. 
Thank you for continuing to listen. Our listenership grows every week and it's beautiful. So like us, share us, rate us, give us feedback. Let us know what you want to hear next. This week in announcements, we want to give a shout out to Alabama Shakespeare Festival. And we want to tell everyone to go see Buzz, which is an awesome upcoming play that focuses on women trailblazers in the theater scene. So Buzz opens on September 4th and goes until September 15th. And we're going to be hosting an event with the Alabama Shakespeare Festival on Monday right here in Montgomery. So this episode drops on Sunday. So you all should, if you're listening to this on the drop date, then tomorrow we're going to be hosting this event at the Goat House Beer Garden right here in Montgomery. It will start at 4 and go to about 6.30. We're going to actually get a chance to talk to Susan Ferrara, who is the playwright, and Emmy Award-winning actor and director Carrie Preston. Ashley tells me this is her good sis from The Good Wife and some other notable shows and titles so this is really exciting and you know it's going to be a fun event so we want you guys to all come out have a beer um, and join us for the conversation and other than that we love you guys and we'll see you for the next episode bye bye Bye. Ashley can't keep her shit together. (laughs) It's all her fault. Okay, I'm sorry.